Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it's Dan Lebetard, and welcome again to South Beach Sessions, which this week we're going to do a little differently, longer, more personally, and it's going to involve telling you a story and a secret, although it won't be much of a secret to those of you who are listening closely in the shadows during the worst of the initial COVID lockdown. Director Adam McKay, who is making more and cooler shit than just about anyone in Hollywood these days, has become a friend of the show, which has been a huge thrill for me professionally and personally and creatively. I reached out to him many years ago, inspired by the funnier die stuff he was doing with Will Ferrell, and I was stunned to learn that he regularly listened to our show. This is a guy who's practically responsible for a generation of comedy, going from head writer on Saturday Night Live during its glory days to Kenny Powers and Anchorman and Step Brothers and Talladega Nights. And he calls me now just to say how much he loves Chris Whittingham, the fancy lad. The same thing happened with Parks and Rec's creator, Mike Schur, who seems starstruck when he got to sit with Billy Gill and Roy. Our show has gotten many compliments over the years, but there are few better than making those two particular guys laugh. McKay's Don't Look Up movie is in theaters now, and it drops on Netflix this week. And he's also executive producing Succession, Dead to Me, and a thousand other things with an impossibly high standard of excellence. I think what you're about to hear as he reaches the heights of his Hollywood power this week with this movie is a really unique and honest glimpse into his genius and into creativity in general. But the story and secret I wanted to tell you is about what kind of friend he has become and why. In July of 2019, I went to meet with ESPN's president in New York after calling the company's policy of sitting out politics cowardly. Before I returned to the air, Valerie and I went to the Disney store to buy 25 Dumbo elephants because I wanted to make a joke at ESPN's expense in general and at Disney's expense more literally. I really enjoyed expensing those dumb Dumbos. The elephant is the symbol for the Republican Party, and this one was literally named Dumbo, so we eventually hung them up on air and never mentioned why, thus ignoring both the controversy and all the elephants in the room. It was while I was at the Disney store buying those dumb Dumbos that McKay, who was reading about my controversy, called me with an offer that literally made my mouth hang open. He didn't know me that well. He saw I was in trouble, and he offered to help in any way he could. But it wasn't this stupid Hollywood way of doing that. He was insistent. He wanted to help in any way he could. And no matter how busy he is, and there aren't a whole lot of people in entertainment busier, all he has done since is help in every single way I've asked and also 
in many, many ways that I haven't. He writes for us, volunteers to do it, plays characters. He's even helped our friends. He's the reason Billy Corbin's 537 Votes movie made its way about Miami and Cubans onto HBO, and he's going to be executive producing Bomani Jones's new HBO show next year. He's opened up a remarkable number of doors at Metal Arc Media, and we plan on partnering with him on all sorts of stuff in the future. I really can't articulate to you how helpful he has been since that call or how moving and meaningful that is to me. But I will say that we as a show couldn't have jumped to our freedom without knowing we had friends like him out there willing to help us. Here's Adam McKay. Woo! Are you, are you tired? Are you joyous? Like this is this is the height of the good stuff, or it's supposed to be professionally, right? When you make the stuff that you want, and everyone gets to see it, and there's applause. Uh, there's supposed to be there's supposed to be joy there, but I also imagine that you that you're. Why are you laughing? Why are you already laughing? We haven't even started I, yet. This this movie is just a. This whole experience has been a bucking bronco i mean it is just one of the craziest experiences i've ever had from writing it before the pandemic as an attempt to do a, a big comedy dealing with the climate the impending climate crisis that the world is utterly ignoring and then boom the pandemic hits and you watch like so much of the movie you've seen it so much of it actually play out i mean i had to cut some stuff because it was so much like the pandemic to then you know the release of it and this fiery love hate response like tremendous great reviews but also hate reviews and i was just joking with a friend of mine i was like why do the last couple movies i've done have this like 50 50 love eight i think i should go do a biopic on like dolly parton or something and just <laughs> give myself a giant break um, what are you what are you talking about i mean we've dragged fauci <laughs> like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter who it is that you put in front of people we're gonna end up fighting over over, I mean, all we do is fight these days. You and I, I think, teeter between laughing and profound sadness combined with uh, with a whole undercurrent of fear at everything happening in the world. Dan, Dolly Parton? I mean, come on. I don't know. Maybe she supported something questionable in the past. Shush. Shush your mouth. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe somebody's <laughs> going to do some nine-part docu-series that ends up you know, making us feel like uh, the whole thing with Dolly Parton was always a giant lie. No, no, stop it. Stop it. Jolene, the song Jolene. I'm just clinging to it. No, it's been crazy. And then uh, I'm here in New York City. We had this premiere press junket, but then Omicron, you know, it comes in. So they canceled our European premieres. So now I'm like in a hotel room, sort of getting tested every day to make sure I'm okay. But then I have to go to the music spotting for the Lakers show, which that trailer, it's just, it's, and then my wife's in Slovakia making an indie movie and it's been crazy, man. And then the world, it just, a lot of it's the world is chugging along. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, I don't, I don't mean to act like my experience is so unique because we're all living in this 
bouncy castle full of hyenas and wine glasses that is <laughs> the, the modern world. Um, so it's not just me, but this movie, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, who's going to watch it, um, it opens in theaters today and then is on Netflix December 24th. When you see this movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. I mean, the movie is an attempt to laugh at the madness, to kind of, you know, have a step back from it in the feels and feelings. So it's just I've been a constant, strange process of uh, seeing the world interact with the movie, the wor- movie reflect the world. And then in the middle of all of it, I did this piece for Vanity Fair and the dude trotted out a little bit of dirt about my split up with Will Ferrell. And I owned my side of it. I wasn't going to get into a thousand other details about it. But uh, and I thought, you know what, just be honest. I, I you know, involved a phone call after Ferrell and I split up It involved a phone call about casting on the Lakers show that even though we weren't on the best of terms, I probably should have made. And then I got the divine joy, which you've probably had happen to you, but I haven't, where I got aggregated, which for those people that don't know how aggregation works, it's a little bit like having your colonoscopy footage broadcast in Times Square with the subheading, Mr. Adam McKay. <laughs> you seem genuinely hurt by everything that happened there. I don't, I, before we go into this, because I want to talk about what Vanity Fair wrote about you because I was eager to read that because uh, long form profiles on interesting people uh, by good writers and good reporters tend to be very thorough and the whole thing left me wanting. You granted access to a writer for a long time. I did think there was divine comedy in you writing a movie about the world ending or the apocalyptic times we're living in in terms of climate change and you're doing a feature with a profile writer where you're spending days with him a lot of intimate time with him and then of course as you're shouting that the world is ending the you know half the article is about will ferrell and the breakup and by the way i i'm not giving the guy a hard time he did his job and he's a good writer like i thought the piece was well written had some good stuff in it uh you know i talked about some other things for my personal life that i thought that was going to be the piece but it is the world we live in and i'm not like mad at any one individual in particular uh, but you have to kind of just laugh because it's the system we're in. I mean, the way these magazines have to stay alive is they have to get aggregated. So they get clicks and links. And and to do that, you got to sprinkle a little, you got to get a little good dirt. The guy did a good job. He went and found a source on a particular little piece of dirt about our breakup and did his job. So I'm not, none of this is to gripe about any individuals, but my, it was, yeah, it's just the irony of it. And then the experience of, you know, I'm a writer director. I'm not a, like, I talked to the other actors in the movie about it and they were like, oh yeah, I've been through that. And like, they had grizzled experiences. They hit me with it, but I was like, what the hell? And they're, <laughs> they were like, yeah, that's how it goes. Um, but it's fine. It, it's, it's okay now, but just the whole, experience and then you know we made this movie to be a conversation starter i knew it wasn't a traditional movie i knew it broke a lot of the hollywood rules uh, you and i talked about it when i was making it 
And then now we're getting this fiery critical response. And then in the middle of a new variant hitting and it's something. I wanted and kept asking you about joy, about the joy in the process. I don't feel like I've gotten that answer from you. Like you're at the you're at the height of what would look like creative success for anybody ambitious or creative. You're making all the projects you want to make. You're intimately involved with succession. Uh, the Showtime movie uh, or the Showtime series on HBO, I'm sure is going to be excellent. The trailer was spectacular. You just mentioned uh, some details about casting. You chat, you cast John C. Riley uh, as Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers. He looks just like him in the trailer that I saw. You didn't cast uh, Will Ferrell. I'm not interested in the details of that. I'm interested of what it feels like to have what was clearly a friendship that mattered to you uh, come apart in a way that now is being aggregated. And you're mentioning at the height of what should be joy, again, the idea of, man, this profile writer for this magazine really, you know, you're, you're saying you're okay and you're fine with it, but this is deeply personal stuff. You and Will had a great partnership, a great friendship. You loved each other. You made a lot of great shit together. You laughed a lot together and it sounded like it hurt you a little bit it did it did it definitely did i mean i was saying it at the end i mean we had the company for 14 years really successful he's one of the he's the best collaborator i've ever had in my life a good friend and as the and you know he just never wanted a big company he several times talked about the idea he's just not a guy who wants to produce a lot of stuff and so the company almost broke up several times and the last time he said it i was like let's do this let's preserve the friendship and then there's just something that happens when you split up entities but it's weird. And I could feel it happening. And I literally was saying, don't let this become an episode of Behind the Music. Don't let this become a documentary like the Eagles documentary. Like, please, let's not let this happen. But there's kind of a force to it that by the time it ended, it just, you know, didn't feel great. And then four months later, we lose our main actor on the Lakers show. And uh, John C. Riley's, you know, perfect for it. He's a guy who was brought up many times for the role. And Will and I weren't exactly talking. And, you know, I was like, should I call him or not? Like, it's not great. So, yeah, it, it hurt. It, it's personal stuff. It's a long time relationship. I mean, I get why people are into it, why they're interested. I mean, I watched that Eagles documentary. I devoured it. You know, Don Felder <laughs> throwing, a, you know, Glenn Fry throwing a guitar at Don Felder. I mean, come on. It's like we can't help it. You hear these stories. You hear the guys who did Anchorman had like, you know, a falling out. I understand why people would click on it. But yeah, it definitely hurt. It was a weird experience to have it in the press, to have something personally that was tough, just be everywhere. But, you know, thousands of other people have been through it. And I feel like I'm, I'm past that. I, I feel like I sort of got my feet under me with that, saw what it was. I'm okay with that part of it. I'm just kind of, when you're saying, where is the joy? I mean, the joy was definitely there premiere night. Like it was a great premiere. The movie played fantastic, huge laughs, uh, great crowd, tons of interesting people there that were like really praising it. We've gotten huge support from the climate community. Scientists are like flipping for it. 
I think Al Gore just tweeted about it. So I'm really happy with it. It's exactly the movie we wanted to make at exactly the time, a very difficult time. I, I just, I've released a bunch of movies and TV shows over the last, geez, what, you know, what, 20, 25 years. And I've just never had an experience like this one. That's the only reason I keep laughing just because it's, you kind of have to. Um, and everyone involved in it is kind of like, we just talk to each other and we're like, holy moly, this is, this is nuts. Movie reflecting life, life reflecting movie, bumpy ups and downs. And it's just, uh, it's been an experience, but no, the, the privilege of making it, the fun of making it, the heart, you know, laughing, Jonah Hill improvising, uh, the premiere, seeing it really play with a real crowd has all been a total joy you mentioned ups and downs though the downs are there others other than having you know the colonoscopy in times square like is there is there something else that is uh, and and the world and the world possibly ending that too don't forget that yeah like in the middle of it they have the glasgow conference on climate and it's i mean maybe the biggest story in human history, that conference. And, you know, it got some coverage, but it was a disaster. It didn't work. Uh, it was very tepid outcomes. Uh, you know, the movie's coming out now. And like I said, we're getting these fiery polarized reactions. And, you know, the movie's in theaters now, but there's a pandemic. So it's, it's a combination. By, like I said, my wife's filming in Slovakia. Uh, making an indie film where the financing got pulled my you know we're supposed to travel but i don't know if we can so i it's more when i say ups and downs i just mean you know like you're saying the you know the reconciliation bill can't get through you can't even raise the minimum wage it seems like this whole administration's just stalled uh, it seems like Trump's going to come back in in three years, kind of no problem, get reelected again. Uh, we haven't fixed any of the problems with our democracy. So it, it's kind of a mishmash of my personal experiences on this bizarre, bizarre road of making this film and the crazy, bumpy world. So it's when I say ups and downs, I mean, with the movie and then, you know, and then in the middle of it, the pure joy of this Lakers show we made, which is just, I just love it. It's such a, like one of the best things we've done. It turned out exactly like we wanted it to amazing actors. The trailer went out. That was really fun. It's been fun seeing strange people like Al Gore and Bill McKibben tweet about our movie. Like when you get that on a movie, um, you know, Diane Keaton commenting on this you know, Ariana Grande song we made. So it's just what I say, ups and downs. I mean, just more bumpy, bizarre experience. That movie has an amazing amount of star power. I don't know if that has anything to do with any of the bumpiness or bounce house filled with wine glasses and coyotes, but 
uh, among the people that you got to work with on this film, this might be putting you in an unfair spot, but were there any times where you were looking around and were like, how is this happening? Like, this is what, what do you mean Ariana Grande is, is like creating this song herself and improvising and doing some of like, what, was there anything in there where, where even you who I, I suppose could be numb to some of Hollywood silliness were like, how did I arrive here? Yeah. I think you just named for me, the single craziest moment was shooting a fake concert in Wembley Stadium in an airplane hangar in Boston in the dead of winter and seeing Ariana Grande singing live. Uh, the lyrics were, uh, we're all going to die. <laughs> Listen to the goddamn qualified scientists. That was, I remember at that moment turning to my uh, producer, Stacey Robert Steele, and just looking at her and saying, this is batshit crazy. Um, so that, that was pretty crazy. Uh, the other one I had, I think I told you this one, was Meryl Streep showing up at our production offices with her dog and coming in my office. You know, you have to wear the mask. We have the air filters. This is pre-vaccine. And I had spent, during the pandemic, one of the ways I killed time was looking for the most peaceful, relaxing ringtone on my phone because I hate the sound of my ringtone. Like there's a stress built into it, which maybe says more about me than the, the poor ringtone and the talented, talented musicians that put it together. <laughs> uh, I, believe, I believe it's Danny Gerson and Sharon Latie <laughs> do the standard uh, ringtone. If you get a chance, they, they play live quite a bit. They're very talented. <laughs> um, and so I've been looking forever for a relaxing ringtone. So I'm sitting there with Meryl Streep and my phone rings and I haven't thought about it, but my ringtone is the theme music from the deer hunter. <laughs> that beautiful guitar piece. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's the banjo. No, the, I'm, I'm mixing that up with deliverance. I think <laughs> yeah, very, very different movies. Dan. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Meryl Streep wasn't in deliverance. Um, but um, so I'm there with Meryl Streep and uh, and all of a sudden one of her famous movies theme song is playing on my phone. And I instantly looked like the biggest goon stalker fan in the world. It would be like meeting Mark Hamill <laughs> and your phone rings and it's the Star Wars theme. You just lose all coolness immediately. <laughs> and then I had to explain to her. Well, I was looking for a ringtone that's relaxing and, and she's like one of the coolest people you ever meet. You could tell she doesn't care at all. But um, but that was a good one. That was, uh, you're, you know, I would say she's the greatest film actor in history. And my first meeting with her, I look like a, a pit stained fan at Comic-Con approaching a guy in a, a Darth Vader suit or something. So um, that was pretty good. Um, but the, the rest of them, you know, they're, they're all of them. They're just really good actors and that's more about process. So you pretty quickly just get into it with them. It's sort of like the stories you hear in, in uh, from basketball players when they say like the first time they're on the court and LeBron James is there, they have that moment where you look at them and you're like, holy crap, it's LeBron James. And then the game starts. That's kind of what it's like. It's like, holy crap, it's Meryl Streep. Holy crap, it's Kate Blanchett or Tyler Perry. And then the game starts and then you're just working. So, um, but yeah, it was still crazy. But the Ariana Grande, her 
singing those lyrics in that insane voice uh, in the middle of winter in an airplane hangar, that, that had to be the strangest, kind of most incredible moment. Do you hide in your work? It seems like you're doing too much to not hide in your work, that the adrenaline of it, and there's just so much of it that you're doing right now. And I would imagine that it's all like snorting adrenaline when you get to be this creative at these heights. Uh, do you hide in it? You know, I, I, I really, I mean, I do love it. Like I do genuinely love making stuff or producing stuff. So do I hide in it? I don't know. I mean, I spend a lot of time with my family, with my daughters. I'm home a lot. Like, you know, you get to that age, I'm 53. So I'm not going out to parties that much anymore. I'm not doing a lot of gallivanting. So it's the stuff I do uh, for enjoyment is write or produce something or I get to like I just read an incredible script the other day from these playwrights relatively unknown. That's like one of the best scripts I've read. And so I, I can't entirely tell because I, I really enjoy it. Like reading that script was a thrill for me. And like, where did this come from? Like, Oh my God. So I always wonder because if I wasn't doing this for a living, this would be what I would be doing as a hobby so it's kind of like saying, do you know, do you hide in playing, do you hide your feelings in playing bad pickup basketball? Well, I don't think so, but I love playing bad pickup basketball. Um, yeah, it's just, it's fun. And I have a lot of producers, so it's not as work intensive as the output looks sometimes, you know, like the Lakers show, I directed the pilot, I helped cast it and put it together and set the look but then i have an incredible producer kevin messick who day in day out was on that show watching every little detail and letting me know when i had to pay attention or when i had to jump in so is there something in your films or in your work that you're proud of that you are disappointed that more people don't notice you know i always i i always loved a run that we had and, and sequels are really hard especially with comedy so I'm, I didn't expect the sequel to Anchorman to be as beloved as the first one. It's, it's basically impossible. But there's a run in the middle of that movie of about 35 minutes that I think is as good as anything Farrell and I ever did, where Ron Burgundy and the news team basically discover trash infotainment news and, and ride it to the very top. And he has a line where he says, wait a minute, because they're trying to figure out how to get ready. What if, why do we have to tell people what they need to hear? What if we just told them what they want to hear? And, they, and the news team instantly rallies around it. And, and it's, it's a great little run. It's about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, where I think the filmmaking is actually pretty good. Like the shots we did and the dollies and the music. And all the actors are funny and there's these improvised beats in it that are great. And I always just love that run. And when the movie came out, I, I didn't really hear many people talk about it. And I, I just love that run so much. Um, and then the other one was there's a moment in Vice where Dick Cheney, you know, fishing his whole thing is he's a fly fisherman, his wife said. If you want to understand Dick Cheney, just know one thing. He's a fly fisherman and he's about patience and the long game of minutia. That's the way he operates. And 
there's this, there's a moment where he's in the stream fly fishing and 9-11 has happened and he's starting to become paranoid. It's true that he told the CIA and NSA to give him all of the unfiltered intelligence, which no one does that. It's like listening to like speed metal full blast every single day. And he said, no, no, do it. And there's a moment where Cheney's in the stream and this strange kind of monstrous fish goes in front of him. And that moment always gave me the child. I always loved that moment. I never heard anyone talk about that moment either. But those would be two, two runs or moments that come to mind. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste in Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach. B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. When you think of the most fun or the things that you did with Farrell, uh, just either snapshots, whether because you wrote Cowbell for him on Saturday Night Live, right? And you... Uh, no, I, I actually did not. That was 100% solo Farrell. Farrell used to, once every couple weeks, around four in the morning on Tuesday nights before the read-through, go in his office and come out with a uniquely bizarre Farrell sketch. And through the years, some of them got on. And all the ones he wrote, that was the, that's the, the humdinger. I, I, when I was there, I say it's the funniest single sketch that ever went on the air in the six years I was there. But no, I did not co-write that with him. Did you uh, butt heads with Lorne Michaels? You know, I don't think I butted heads with him because he's too powerful and I was like 27 years old, but I think I got on his nerves. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty fiery and opinionated and uh, was not afraid to express it. So I would, when I was there, I would always go in and out of the doghouse. Uh, there would be times where he would just get sick of me when I was head writer. And then there were other times where, you know, I'd be in the room quite a bit. Um, as I got older, I was able to have a little more perspective and realize one central fact. He created the show. It's his show. Um, once I sort of internalized that reality, I had a much better time on the show and got to have a lot more fun. But my first year as head writer, I was definitely a man on a mission, which I'm sure was quite annoying for him. But um but he's he's pretty like he's pretty great. He doesn't he doesn't yell. He's not like a big you know swinging you know sort of authority guy. He is kind of a very quiet, deft touch, and um, and you still can get him to laugh. It, it, one of the coolest things you'll ever see is at the read through table. Occasionally you can get him, and he'll do a chortling laugh, and it's very satisfying uh, for a guy who's seen so much comedy. But most of all, what's impressive about him is just his eye for young talent is 
almost unparalleled. I mean, the people that he hired, uh, I mean, hired me, I was some, you know, goon from Chicago kind of bouncing around doing second city and improv theater. And he hired, no one was hiring Farrell. No one was hiring Molly Shannon. No one was hiring Kristen Wiggs. So um, it, it really is impressive. And he continues to do it. They've still got tons of talented people on that show. Other than the skit I assigned to you that wasn't yours, though, to answer the question on the stuff that you did with Farrell, because I do want to circle back around there and just go through the Vanity Fair article that did have other interesting stuff that I want to talk to you about, because I did not know that Funny or Die died because you refused to take petroleum money. Yeah, that's not why it it's still going, by the way. I'm sorry. I, I should have said why you ended your affiliation with it. Yeah. So I was further and further away from it. There was always an understanding that if there was ever questionable ad dollars, someone would please come to me. And I, I'm not high and mighty about it. I was just like, look, if it's Smith and Wesson or, you know, some, you know, if it's Exxon or some super creepy company, give me a heads up. Otherwise I get how the world works. You got to do ad dollars. And then one day I, yeah, I looked online and there was a series of videos um, was it Chevron or Shell? I can't remember who it was, but it was one of those big oil companies with like funny videos from Funny or Die. I just, yeah, I got really upset. I felt really kind of queasy about it. At the same time, a lot of the people there are friends of mine and friends to this day. So I was upset, but I also, they apologized. And I just told them, I go, look, guys, maybe I shouldn't be on the board anymore. I just, the fact that this could happen isn't like, you know, the end of our friendship or it doesn't mean I hate you. I still want funnier diet to work, but maybe I should take a step back. So I, I did. I took a step back. I'm going to stay with this question until I get it answered. The Will Ferrell, if yeah, I know you don't rank these things necessarily, but when you think, because you guys did so much good work together, just, I mean, just the, the Kenny Powers, they, was that the first thing you guys had done for HBO? Was that the first uh, relationship thing that you did with HBO? That's correct. I think you're right. That was our first show. That's the first time I worked with Casey Bloys, who's now the head of HBO and have done many, many things with him. And when you look at the places where you think of the snapshots that give you the most happiness, uh, you know, going back through, we can go through all of them, right? Because Funny or Die was something that uh, was birthed, at least in part, because you, your daughter and Will and Will were doing a, you know, a landlord sketch at the beginning of the Internet or at the beginning of things going viral. Yeah. I mean, if I look back at just the really, I mean, what Farrell and I had that was so great was he loved the idea, as did I, that it's the joke is almost that you're doing the thing you're doing. So I'll never forget our first movie, Anchorman. We have this professional crew. You've got a perfect set wardrobe and we're shooting the scene where Farrell and Applegate are in the car and he's talking about San Diego. Uh, you know, uh, some people mean Terry, you know, uh, means a whale's vagina. And we're shooting this scene and Farrell can't keep a straight face because it's the most ridiculous scene you could maybe possibly right and we're looking at all these crew members with just straight faces 
doing their job really well, members of unions and guilds. And he's saying <laughs> Santiago means a whale's vagina. And he just couldn't get through it. And I couldn't get through it. I'm the director and I'm wrecking takes laughing from behind the monitor. <laughs> So that was always the spirit of whatever we did uh, with every movie. It was with the landlord video. It was just purely goofing around. I'll go up to your house. I'll be up in an hour. We'll shoot this thing. It'll take 40 minutes. My daughter just repeats anything you say to her. It'll be really funny. We'll put it on this silly website where we'll do sketches. And so the spirit of all of it and, and what was great with Eastbound and Down was Danny McBride and Jody Hill and the late Ben Best had that same kind of thing going on. They were they're uh, guys from North Carolina, just really funny guys who love to do it to do it. And um, so, yeah, I, I the moments I think of are like coming home from the set of Step Brothers. And my body physically being sore from laughing so hard all day long. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, muscles were sore. Or the other guys, which... that The other guys, we had so much fun making that movie that it almost put me into a health crisis. Like, we, we were just eating chicken parm sandwiches, uh, you know, playing poker, laughing, doing bits all day long on the weekends, going out, having beers. Like it was the whole experience was. And once again, sore at the end of the day from doing bits. You have Michael Keaton on set, and Rob Riggle and Damon Wayans Jr. Like these incredibly funny people just everywhere. So those are the moments I remember. It's nice when the movies would land and do well, but the best part of it were the days of shooting on set and just laughing. You know what I mean? Like the difference, I, I, I think people don't talk about it enough, the different kinds of laughs you can have. Like, you know, it's funny with this movie, Don't Look Up, because we decided to make large parts of it a laugh out loud comedy. And you kind of know when you do that, you're going to lose some critics. You're going to like, it's just laugh out loud comedies are kind of looked down on. And then I was joking with my editor, Rye Smile comedies get the good reviews. Like, oh, like those kinds of companies. But I think everyone could agree there's nothing better than just the big, hard, full body, sincere laugh. And that's like most of my great memories from that partnership and SNL and the movies we made and the movies we produced, Funny or Die. And even just hanging around in the office, Chris Henchy was one of our producers who's really funny. And Lauren Kahn was my assistant who's become a successful screenwriter. She can do bits all day long, hilarious and so that's that's the big thing. Is there anything that success in hundred million dollar movies and the responsibility and the seriousness of it that makes you miss parts of that time that you've lost things that no longer can be because you've grown as an artist and there's too much responsibility and it might not ever be that again. Maybe you could recreate it somewhere, but it might not ever be poker, chicken parm and body hurt from laughing. Like is anything about success something that has taken you away from whatever the purity of all that is well i mean thank god there's one thing that can replace that purity i mean there you know and it's it's my my sweet ass speedboat i was and gonna say money money i thought you were gonna <laughs> say money just money dan stacks of money you don't understand how much my body gets sore from laughing when i laugh oh. and how ridiculous it is how they pay me for this stuff you gotta see my boat i mean it is a honey <laughs> 
And that thing starts chopping through the waves, believe me. You can take all the joy, friendship, camaraderie, and youth if you want, but that baby, I mean, it torques. Um, no, I mean, here's the thing. I, I feel like creatively, it's never been better. I just feel like I love my new company, Hyperobject. It's the shows we're doing are so interesting and different. I mean, that cue in the storm was that series was just insane. And to get to work with Cullen Hoback and working with John Lurie and, and uh, we have another docu-series coming out next year. It hasn't been announced yet, but it's insane. And uh, so I'm getting to do different things. Cause I, I love all kinds of movies. I love podcasts. I got to do death at the wing, this podcast about NBA stars who, who died during the eighties. We have another podcast coming out about reunion Island, uh, the Island that's had a bull shark infestation. That's fascinating. So there's lots and lots of good stuff. And fortunately, uh, we still have plenty of funny people at our company that will do bits all day long. So probably the producer, Betsy Koch, who's hilarious. Todd Shulman used to run Sasha Baron Cohen's company. Really funny. Stacy Robert Steele, my, my uh, co my associate producer, hilarious. So there's plenty of bits still. And, uh, my producer, Kevin Masick, still occasionally has to stand there and wait. He's the grown-up in the room. He still occasionally has to wait until we finish the bit, kind of almost looking at his phone what time it is. So, um, no, fortunately, there's a ton of that still going on. Good for you, man. I'm surprised by that answer uh, because I would have thought that the size of the responsibilities would have made it uh, made it less than that. And then I can't remember because we've talked a lot. Did I mention it? I bought this beautiful boat a few years back <laughs> and the amount of joy and fulfillment yes, that brings under, me. Yes, did I mention that? All right. Okay. I didn't know if I did or not. Yes. It's so much fun being on my cigarette boat with Meryl Streep. You're also doing, <laughs> you're also doing an Elizabeth Holmes project, aren't you? Like, out of nowhere, I, I read, anyways, that you're doing a project with that fraudster, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, Elizabeth and I are opening a, a nightclub in Cancun, <laughs> and I don't love you calling her a fraudster. Um, no, we're uh, John Carew is the uh, great journalist who broke that story, uh, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, he wrote an amazing book called Bad Blood. And uh, Mary Parent, who runs Legendary, was drawn to it. So were we. So we were just like Jennifer Lawrence would be perfect. So it's been in development for a little while. I did a rewrite on a draft, but the trial is still going on. So it, it sort of feels like it's a little bit back burner kind of simmer, uh, you know, on a simmer stage right now, um, simply because it's not over. We don't really know what the ending is, but definitely a project I'm excited about. And it kind of encapsulates everything going on in America right now. It's about bluster and success, fake it till you make it, um, you know, it, it, medical technology being overturned for profit. Um, uh, you know, it's a $10 billion company that really at the, in the end turned out to be utterly worthless. Um, 
which I feel like there's so many stories like that going on. So it, it could be really cool. Where and when and how do you make the transition as an artist from Step Brothers and Talladega Nights and, you know, Eastbound and Down and just silly comedy that also, I mean, underrated in Anchorman is that you are skewering the media. Like you're, it's not like it's not without commentary, but somewhere along the line, you decided to make a leap from that stuff to degree of difficulty on Big Short and Vice and now climate change like these are not easy these are not easy things to make this is not put will ferrell and sasha baron cohen in a room and and see if they can be funny together yeah i mean it, it's always been part of what we've done or what i've done i mean going back to chicago when i was doing improvisation you know i studied with this guy del close and there's a whole tradition in chicago that bill murray came out of gilda radner all these amazing people and the big thing in chicago with comedy is they always the second city io all these famous improv theaters got some of which are gone now which is unbelievable io actually shut down but their whole thing was that you know be funny but also you know you got to have stakes. You got to be dealing with targets. You got to be going after power. You got to be trying stuff. Otherwise, the comedy can get real empty real fast. So, you know, when I was at Saturday Live, I would write a lot of the political cold opens. We did shows with plenty of political undertones or overtones at Second City. The Upright Citizens Brigade was a comedy group we started in Chicago, and there was always a kind of satirical kind of street theater edge to that. So it's always been something I've been interested in. But I think the big thing is I just love movies and uh, all kinds of movies. So I felt like the comedies I got to do were just a great way to learn and and kind of grow and, and push it a little bit. And then really it was the happy accident of bumping into the book, The Big Short. Uh, I just read that book and uh, I was one of those books where I read it in one night. My wife was like, you know, at 7.30 a.m., why are you still awake? And I happened to ask a year later, hey, what's going on with that? And it turned out that it had kind of stalled as a project. So it was it was a perfect collision, that project and where I was at. How often does something like that happen? Where Because you've told us the story before about just reading it all, all night, not being able to put it down, but where pissed off is the birthplace of inspiration. Yeah, it, it was, you know, it was a mixture of a lot of different feelings. It was pissed off, but it was also really interested and engaged with incredible characters. I mean, Michael Lewis is a master at, at combining those elements. And I didn't know the esoterica of the financial collapse. My father lost his house in the financial collapse. And I didn't know the underlying causes of it. I just knew that generalities, um, irresponsibility from big banks too big to fail, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it, it was a mixture of a lot of feelings, just really incredible characters tremendous details, learning a lot, um, sometimes funny. You know, Lewis has a sense of humor. And I, I just felt like that was, for me, a, a, a peanut butter chocolate moment where I found the perfect collaborator for 
that leap. What do you regard as the last great comedy that has been made in this country that has been, you know, celebrated? I, I was thinking about this the other day because I I don't know whether it's forgetting Sarah Marshall. Like you gotta go back a ways where the where the country itself is celebrating one comedy. It doesn't feel like that has happened wow. before. I, I don't know. You've probably you know you've probably seen a dozen comedies that you regard highly, but I'm just saying like where the country is has to stop and be like Word of mouth makes something travel that and and makes some a, um, a comedy popular. It's kind of incredible, right? It's been a while. Um, I feel like Trainwreck was pretty good, the Apatow movie, but I don't know if you would quite say that the whole nation was celebrating it. Uh, I, I mean, I think that golden age was what ninety six to two thousand eight, two thousand nine was sort of that golden age of comedy where. When I was a kid, there would be one good comedy every two years, maybe three years. And from 96 to 2008, 2009, it felt like there were like three good comedies every year, sometimes four. What was the last one? I mean, for me, the last comedy I really loved and watched a lot, but it's a niche movie and a small movie was Death of Stalin. I thought was just fantastic. <laughs> um, uh have you seen it i i have not i just i mean it's just a funny sentence uh death of stalin as the last great comedy is uh, i have not seen it but i just thought it was it's funny. really really good i mean idiocracy is funny because it got no theatrical release because it it's got, true because it's true is that why it's funny <laughs> and it got lukewarm critical responses too which is funny to go back and read those reviews um what was the last big well actually let, 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 let me ask the question a different way because it doesn't really matter what the last one was where'd they go like what happened i mean i i have a couple theories on that i mean one theory is a lot of what we were all riffing on from the 90s into the 2000s was sort of empty suited white guys you know big man children and it was kind of perfect because in a way we're, we're calling out uh, a lot of a lot of the misogyny and white entitlement of the country while at the same time laughing about it in this absurdist way. Uh, and then I would say after 2008, it wasn't funny. Like 2008, the entire world economy collapsed. You started to see because of cell phones awareness of violence uh, against unarmed people of color, uh, you started to really see the income inequality hit dangerous levels. The climate change, like all these things started to come into focus that in a way, like even if you go back to Austin Powers, which I kind of think started that run of, of comedies, you know, it, 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 Austin Powers, a misogynistic, playboy sex addict 60s character and and you see the output of all of that and it just it felt like in one week it just wasn't funny and it also it felt like the world too couldn't hold that anymore the world became too unstable to do a story like forgetting sarah marshall like how would you even do that now like it's forgetting sarah marshall but they're plane is diverted because of fires the the pandemic the you know that it's um 
Yeah, yeah. I would say 2008. I, I, there may be some great comedies after that. In fact, there definitely are. But to me, it felt like a sea change with that financial collapse and then led to many other sea changes to the point where I think people are trying to reorient themselves as to what we can collectively laugh about because we don't entirely know where we are right now. I mean, that, that's what we tried to do with Don't Look Up. We tried to make the collective laugh be, oh, my God, the world is insane. Because it's one thing if I talk to someone I know in my family who voted for Trump and I talk to like the most progressive friend I have, both of those extremes can laugh at how insane the world is right now. It's the one thing I've noticed. I can't believe, Adam, that during a pandemic that you had your movie shut down and that some of the things that you were writing as fiction as joke became true and obsolete and had to be cut from your movie. I can't believe that uh, your movie is not any more absurd than what is presently happening in the world. It's it's I, I, I mean, when I wrote the script, it was written as an absurdist big comedy slash satire. I mean, it was supposed to be as absurd as anything you can imagine. And to see it just inch its way close to reality, just to cozy up to this absurd story. It's, it's incredible. It's, I've never seen anything like it. I really haven't. I've got, you know, comedy kind of can do that. Like, you know, in the Simpsons, they had a bit where Donald Trump was president because you are thinking of the things that most people aren't thinking of it's supposed to be absurd so there are a lot of stories from comedy of that happening i mean the trump becoming president on the simpsons is a really famous one there's some sketches from snl when i was there that became you know remarkably true but uh but this one just yeah the fact that one lens you know it's like when you're getting your eyes checked how the one lens, one eye is distorted with the machine and the other one's clear and then slowly they merge. That's what this process has felt like. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What did you have to take out of the movie because it happened in real life? And you're like, oh, my God. They, Wait, they... hold on one second, Dan. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, who takes care of my boat, is here. No, no. <laughs> just buff it. Buff it and oil the leather. Yes, yes, yeah. Make sure the cooler is filled with cold Peronis. Yeah, well, maybe just fucking do it, and then it gets done. All right? All right. Uh, <laughs> it was getting too serious asking? for you. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. What's his name? What's his uh, the, the Jeffrey. boat buffer? Jeffrey, uh, he's, a, he's a great kid. He's a great kid. He's a little bit of a knucklehead. Sometimes you got to give him a little tongue lashing. He's uh, a little too concerned about uh, his hair, and, and uh, <laughs> it's got to have his safety protocols all the time. And it's like, Jeffrey. Do the do the goddamn job. What, what did you have to take out of the movie that happened in real life? And you're like, oh, man, that was funny. That hurts to take out, but I can't use it because it actually happened. There's a or little run in the movie where they're trying to pass the Comet spending bill. And, <laughs> and they have to include a tax cut for the 1%. 
and they had to throw in a provision uh, uh, for the religious folks that all doctors have to announce if they've ever had a homosexual experience to any patients. And um, and so it was a runner in the movie that anytime doctors would pop up, they would have to say when I was in college, I'm your doctor, Dr. Lewiston. When I was in college, I did have one experience with a friend where we touched each other's <laughs> genitals. Anyway, and, uh, and then during the uh, COVID, I turned on the TV and they had passed the COVID spending bill and there was a tax break for the one percent of it. And uh, some provisions appeasing some of the, you know, culture war junk. And I was like, all right, that's that just looks like I wrote it off a headline. So that that bit came out. Um, we had some press conferences with uh, the president and Leo's character and Jonah that played an awful lot like the famous press conferences with Trump and uh, Fauci. Uh, there were just two on the head. So they were really funny where Meryl and Jonah were just improvising like crazy. Um, uh, maybe they'll release them as extras, but it was just, it, it looked like we just almost just played the tape of the Trump, uh, what's her name, uh, Burke's uh, Fauci press conferences. What do you regard as more challenging to make? Uh, some of the later work that you have done or just the, or some, I shouldn't say just, or comedies, which are, I mean, it's very difficult to make a good comedy. I think, the actual effort of filming a comedy comedy, a laugh out loud comedy is the most exhausting thing you can do. Uh, your mind is just constantly going. I've talked with Seth Rogen about it and he agrees too, because he's done some stuff that's not, you know, strictly comedy that the preachers series and some other things. And both of us just quickly were like, Oh, comedy is much harder uh, because your mind is always firing. You're covering every eventuality. You don't ever want to be pinned in a corner with a bad joke. You're always trying to improvise. You're, you're trying to blend story with the funny moments. And uh, it, it's a lot of mental uh, uh, calories that you're burning with it. And there are days where you're on set. I remember on Step Brothers, Riley and Farrell coming up to me and just saying, Hey man, we're we're tired today. Can can we just have one day where we don't improvise? And I was like, you know what? You guys don't have to. I'll throw out the suggestions from off camera, and I'll never forget. John turned to Will and just said, "I told you he'd say no." <laughs> and uh, but with these movies, there's just like the nuancey stuff is trickier. Um, the the. The, the subtle stuff plays much louder and it's much more delicate. And then especially because a lot of these subjects are difficult subjects, like Dick Cheney is a legendarily private guy who has covered all of his tracks in his life. So that was that was incredibly difficult. We hired a journalist uh, to do our own investigations. I had to read every single book and article that existed. I interviewed people, spoke to other journalists. It was exhausting the amount of work that went into that. And then with this movie, to get this strange tone uh, to line up between, you know, absurdist comedy and to some degree a horror movie or a tragedy, just hours and hours of editing and nipping and tucking. And so it tends to be more kind of on the 
the refining side that a lot of the work happens. And then you're in a different arena too. So, um, but yeah, as far as pure exhaustion, pure mental effort, nothing touches laugh driven uh, comedies. Do you know when a movie is funny? I mean, obviously you laugh a lot on all the sets. I assume, I assume your life is filled with laughter all over the place. Like you won't allow it unless there's laughter all over the place. But uh, do you find that there are times that your antenna's off that you think something is uproariously funny and it doesn't, it just doesn't work. You know, the times that that's really happened in a big way have turned out to be lessons and it's, I remember on Step Brothers, we shot one of the funniest scenes I've ever filmed in my life. And it's actually on YouTube. You can see it because it's not in the movie. And it's where Rob Riggle has a heart attack in front of Farrell. And then Adam Scott walks in the door, who's Riggle's boss, and he tries to play it off like he's not having a heart attack and tries to cover it up. And a lot of it spiraled in the improv and then Riggle actually dies for a second in the scene and sees his grandmother, but plays it all off. Like it's nothing while Pharaoh's going, you're having a heart attack. And it's one of the funniest scenes I have ever, we were crying with laughter, but the lesson was that where it fell in the movie story-wise was the place that couldn't hold the scene because you're running out into your late second act, beginning of your third act. And that's where you got to really start moving story-wise. And so I tried five, six screenings to get that in there. I tried shortening it. I tried moving it and I just couldn't get it to work. And the lesson for, especially for comedy is that it's, you're always harmonizing with the story uh, that the story is what allows you the room to do the comedy and in the beginning days with Anchorman, we looked at the story as more of just uh, a structure to hold the laughs. And uh, and so about three or four times, we had really, really funny bits that I would have bet anything that would work, but they weren't in the right place in the story. I would feel the need to force them in if they made me laugh that hard. Like, I couldn't do something that funny and not have people see it. Like, if, if I thought it was that funny, I'd want to share it. I, I try to figure out a way to share it. I, I've done that. I mean, there, there, there are times where we put it in anyway, where there's a line, a moment, uh, a little bit of a run. But if you have like this bit with the heart attack was a, what, four minute bit at the end of your movie, like it, you can feel the movie jump off the tracks. Like it, it, it without exaggeration, throws the whole movie out of gear like you can feel the gears grinding when that happens it's just too destructive and sure enough we took it out and the whole ending cruised and came to life and uh so yeah that happens a lot i mean there's a line in don't look up that just makes me laugh so hard and it gets no laugh at all but i left it in it's where they're looking at the the rescue mission and uh the first <laughs> rescue mission in the movie and a guy says, I think it's turning around. And the guy next to him goes, uh, no, it's a course correction. I was in the Navy. And line makes me laugh every single time. Never got one single chuckle. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't care. You're leaving it in. So we, we still we still do that. That's, that's just you being stubborn. Can you tell us how you're different or better or how you think you're better as a director, as an artist, as a storyteller? And as a comedian than you were, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I think I 
there's lessons you learn and a lot of it's humility when you're dealing with incredibly high speeds and you're dealing with something as powerful as the ocean when I'm on my boat that <laughs> it can't help but make you a better person. Uh, because I'll tell you, if you sleep on the ocean, you're, you're in trouble. And if you're going, uh, you know, 98 miles an hour and all of a sudden a squat, um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I actually appreciate, no, what I appreciate is that you for you, you've got such an antenna up for these things that you on behalf of the audience are thinking to yourself, you know what, Dan, some of these questions are too serious. I need to lighten it up a little bit. You're, <laughs> you're going, you're doing too much one, two, three, because I'm look, I'll, I'll share this with you. I have shared it with you and I will share it with the audience as well. You've been uh, very helpful to us over the last couple of years for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different spaces because you genuinely uh, are a creative, helpful, kind uh, soul. But I am genuinely curious because I have been since reaching out to you. I don't know how I must have been seven years ago or eight years ago where I just simply admired what Funnier Die was trying to do. And I wanted something like that. And I wanted your advice on like how how explain to me how and you were just kind enough to to entertain that kind of question and so to watch your growth as an artist over the last 25 years or I, I guess it would be 30 years as somebody who gets to the point that's making an important movie that america needs to see and is trying to do it as a comedy when like i know i mean there was temptation to not do it as a comedy because you're scared and you're outraged and there are a lot of days you don't feel like laughing yeah, I mean, have I gotten better? I, I've definitely gotten craftier. I've definitely gotten smarter about where to put energy, where to put focus, when to go hard, when to let people do their job. Uh, I, one thing I think you get better at, and maybe this is for everyone, is you do learn to relax a little bit when you fail uh, early on in a project when something's not working early on, I, I may have been a little more freaked out. Um, and now I know it's just, no, that's part of it. You're going to have times where it's not going to work. We're going to keep working on it. Um, so I, I don't ever start to get alarmed with the state of a cut of a movie till, you know, the third or fourth time I put it up in front of some kind of crowd. So I think the process has gotten smarter. Um, but the world keeps, you know, it, it's it's changing in such a confusing and and shocking and and swinging and swaying way that um, I feel like it's constantly new as far as how to interpret it or how I understand it or how I try and engage with it and how audiences. I feel like we're all trying to figure out how to engage with the world right now. So that that part I still feel new and inexperienced on, which is probably why I keep uh, being drawn to doing these stories uh, about this new world. So I don't know if that makes sense, but you know what I mean? I think I got smarter about the process, but at the same time, I still feel just as stupid about the state of the world. That's what I'm trying to say. But there's a pretty good, there is a pretty good soothing. It sounds a lot like confidence. I don't know how much of your comedy or the roots of it come from insecurity or childhood or where it is you're funny. I've never asked you where your funny comes from. It's what I was hoping to read in that Vanity Fair article, like where the funny comes from. But it is, 
uh, perpetually fascinating to me to to see how how it is that uh, confidence grows, right? Because when you're talking about being comfortable with failure, it just means you've arrived in a place where you're not, you can't, you're, it doesn't sound like you're too worried about how much of any of what you're making is received because you've su- stacked enough successes on top of each other that, that, that failure becomes comfortable. Like that's a pretty good working definition for confidence. Yeah. The only thing that, that is still bugs me is if you, you fail or you mess up and it's because of something you missed that bugs me. And I'm like, ah, man, why did it get sloppy there? Or why did I miss that? But when I've gone through the movie, like with this new movie, don't look up and believe me, some people love it and some people absolutely hate it. I'm good with it because I went through every nook and cranny of it. I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew what I was hoping it would do with audiences. And I know that's not always going to work. And I'm good with that. But there are there are times in the past where you just flat out make a mistake. And, and that'll nag me. I still remember some of those moments. Um, and, and they're little ones. They're tiny ones where you're like, ah, why did I do that? Um, but yeah, for the most part, so long I feel like so long as you're thorough and sincere and you put in the work, that's kind of all you can do. You say that, and yet the Vanity Fair article was meant to be thorough and sincere. You <laughs> talked you talked about depression, you talked about food stamps, you talked about uh tremors, you t- like you gave this guy some vulnerability to work with. You decided to tell your tell your story and what i'd like to do over the course of the remaining conversation is fill in the parts that did not get told that you were hoping to get told when you agree to the silliness of a magazine profile in 2021 when it's not something that probably i don't know is is the breakup with feral something that's going to help your movie like is the is the aggregated breakup with feral something that is going to help don't look up no no Absolutely not. Uh, you know, if anything, the way it was aggregated, it, you know, there's some people that probably now hate me because, you know, they think I screwed over Buddy the Elf. Uh, you know, it's it's so, no, it's not helpful. And yeah, it was funny because I did the profile. It's 2021. And I just thought I'm going to say everything. I, I like nowadays you turn on the TV, you see NFL players. I see that one Bosa brother talking about depression. Um, I, I, why would anyone not say anything? So I just felt like, you know, and my essential tremor, like it's a condition I have. People have it. I'm going to talk about it. So uh, so I did go into it with, with uh, the writer, pretty much an open book. I, I think I would have talked about anything. Um and even the feral stuff I would have talked about, I just, you know, with any relationship, there's just always these little hurts. And if you start throwing them in public, they look dirty and they get bigger than they actually are. And so I wasn't going to go into that stuff. But um, but, yeah, I did approach it like I think I even told him at one point, like, what do you want to talk about? I, I had a pretty big depression after Talladega Nights. It was that classic moment of everything worked out great. You've got the number one movie in the country. You've, you're happy with it. You've got, you know, 
you've laughed making it uh, money, more money than I ever could have imagined. You're right. We grew up pretty poor, single mom, food stamps. And suddenly, you know, people are saying words to me like, oh, you know, here's a million dollars, which I just never thought I would hear. I didn't get that on Anchorman. So and it was that moment of you realize you can fix the outside as much as you want. You can make the outside perfect, but you still got stuff inside of you. It's a classic moment. And I hit a big depression. Um, and fortunately, I was lucky that I had resources where I was able to go to a mental health professional, a great therapist, and just put in the work on it. And it turned out to, I think, be a good thing for my life. You know, it turned out that I got to really confront some feelings and stuff inside myself that I, I didn't know were there, that I was still operating a little bit like a, a 27 year old, you know, comedy guy. And uh, so, yeah, we got into that. And, uh, and, you know, I have a central tremor, which I always tell people is basically what Catherine Hepburn had. If you remember her, uh, it's a shakiness of the hands and head and it comes and goes. Sometimes it doesn't bother me. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it kicks in a lot. And I talked about, you know, how hard that can be sometimes and try to be upfront. There's 7 million people that have a central tremor and tried to put it out there that if you have it, screw it, go get shaky. Don't stop your life. I mean, that's the only path that's ever worked for me. Um, but any other questions? I, I just feel like in 2021, why wouldn't everyone be vulnerable? Like talk about our honest shit. It's one of the few good things that's really turned recently is this openness about mental health and our individual struggles, I would say is a positive amidst this uh, bouncy castle full of hyenas and wine glasses. Did you look at what happened after Talladega Nights and say, why doesn't this feel better? Isn't this everything I wanted? Or like, what were you uh, dealing with an introspection? Were you surprised by your depression, not, not knowing that it was there somehow or that that success might cover it up? 100% blindsided by it. It, it. it came in the form of anxiety and depression. Uh, I think the anxiety was kind of the surface feeling that then led to a pretty deep, you know, four or five month depression. And I had no idea what was happening. Uh, I, and, and meanwhile, then I went, and went to see my therapist, this therapist that was recommended to me. And I started telling him what I was experiencing in my dreams. And he laughed. Because he's like, your dreams are so obvious to interpret that. Uh, and what's happening to you is so you know, uh, easy to figure out. <laughs> I was like, I, had, I, I was like, I, I've just been sleeping a lot. He's like, no, 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 let's get into it. So uh, thank God my, uh, my subconscious and my physical body were so flagrant in screaming to me that something's wrong, that uh, a therapist was pretty quickly able to diagnose. It. What were you expecting to happen after Talladega Nights? Like what caught like what caught you off guard? Uh, I mean, it kind of crept up on me. I, I didn't, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a total goof. I didn't think it would be like I'd be wearing a sparkly gold tuxedo and doing a musical number in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. I, I, I knew that, you know, it's I've been doing it for a little while. It just it, it, it all hit me in such a cartoonish way. Uh, having the number one movie, you know, I remember going to a restaurant and it gave me like the chef's table and people were calling and wanting to meet with me like my, 
idols of mine and I had lunch with like Chris Rock and it's like, oh my God, it's Chris Rock, you know, and it, so it all came and all of a sudden the money jumped up too. It went from, you know, making a nice living to making a lot of money. And so, yeah, it all, all kind of just hit. And then this creeping feeling kept coming and getting louder. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know what I expected and I didn't entirely know in the moment what was happening, but it's, I've heard Kevin Love, I think, was it on your show? Or I've heard him on shows describe the feeling of having a panic attack. And, and that's kind of what it felt like, only maybe not quite as intense and it lasted longer. And I remember being confused like Kevin Love was, where I, I, I remember thinking like, what is this? What's going on? Tyson Fury talks about this, and I don't know how much of this is wrapped up in it, Adam, because of what your expectations were for making it a success or whatever it is that you were defining as happiness. But Tyson Fury, coming from you know a lineage of street fighters and family street fighters, gets to heavyweight champion of the world, and the feeling of it is so underwhelming that he immediately, immediately gains 100 pounds and develops a cocaine addiction. The thing that he wanted was so was so much emptier than he thought it would be. And I don't know how much of that is wrapped up in what you're talking about, because you'd had plenty of successes before Talladega Nights. But not like that. It, there was something about it that was a little bit extra cartoonish, where it also was this movie that kind of bridged Red State, Blue State. It just was big and splashy. It actually got good reviews, too, which is unusual for comedy comedies. And uh, there was just a, a yeah, the, and the money jumped up and there was just the studio was so happy and it, it felt bigger for some reason. And the truth hits you that it re and you tell this to people that are dealing with stuff or have student debt or have lost a job, you seem like the biggest asshole in the world but you really do realize in a moment like that it is not about that that it is about the process that really the memory i have from that movie is filming it or the memory i have from that movie is laughing in a theater when the movie first came out at the premiere that's actually what i remember about that um yes it's nice to have money but you know, Steven Spielberg has the greatest quote on having money. He, he said, lunch can only be so good. And and it's so true. It, it's you really do get a point where like, oh, I've got enough money. I can afford my house. I can pay for my kids school. I can do this. I can have dental care and I can take vacations. What else is there at that point? Um, and so um so it was, it turned out to be the, the best possible experience. And once again, I was just lucky as shit that I had the means and the availability, I had the means and the access to mental health professionals. That was the key. I mean, if I had been living somewhere else in a different economic circumstance, I don't know what would happen to me. I maybe would have put on a hundred pounds and had a cocaine addiction like, uh, Tyson Fury. Well, what pulled you out of it? What are the things? I mean, obviously, you're saying you have mental health professionals, but what did they do uh, to make that four or five months subside and not return? I mean, I will never forget this. He just said, come with me, because usually you're in an office. And I got in his car and we drove 
towards the ocean and he pulled into a marina and he said, look at this. And there was the most beautiful boat I've, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> and then no, I bought I'll, it. I bought it on the spot. I'll tell you exactly what happened. So I got introduced to this idea. It's an old Jungian thing about the shadow self. And you can say it in a thousand different kinds of jargon, but essentially what it is, is we all have parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, that we judge, that we hide. And if you keep ignoring those parts to yourself, they will rise up. They will come out in unhealthy ways. They'll come out as anxiety. They'll come out as hypervigilance, judgment. They'll come out in a negative sort of narrative internal voice. And really simply, this guy just was like, we're going to start talking to that side of yourself, the side you've shut away. And I was like, what do you mean? And lo and behold, I had whole aspects to myself that I had tamped down, that I had hidden, that I was ashamed of, that I was very judgmental of, one of which was my essential tremor, which you know can be embarrassing and hiding that and not wanting it to be on camera and all that kind of stuff and other aspects of my life. And just simply opening that up and accepting that part of myself, I swear to God, it was one session we did it for. And when I walked out of the session, I felt like before, I felt like I had a 50-pound safe on my back and I walked out and it felt like it was like a 20-pound safe. It still wasn't perfect, but you could just feel the release. It was like a tangible thing. And, and you could phrase that however you want. I mean, some, some might just call it self-love. I mean, you could just really call it self-love, which is just talking to yourself, talking to that side of yourself and just turning to it. And it was an incredible, incredible experience. Did you talk to the insecurity surrounding the tremor, the essential tremor that lasted? How, like, how long was this insecurity something that was plaguing you? What was the, because I would imagine something like that. I don't even know. I don't know what your ambitions or your aspirations are, but you have a lot of performer in you. And I don't know if you chose writing and directing instead of some of the things that uh, you have others do, because maybe the tremor influenced some of that, because I can imagine you, these things that you do so well writing for others, I can imagine that you can also do them. Yeah, I think it definitely played a part. It would pop up a little bit when I was still performing. And then it does increase as you get older. Anyone who has it, once again, it's harmless. Don't worry. It's a little embarrassing. But uh, I think that definitely came into play. Fortunately, I always loved writing. I always loved directing. So it didn't feel like much of a sacrifice. To answer your initial question, how did I deal with that? How much do I have to do? I still deal with it every, like, I still do this work every single day it becomes a part of your life that you try and change your relationship with yourself. You try and remember not to be too harsh on yourself. I'll have an experience where maybe I'm on camera and I get shaky from my essential tremor. Well, 20 years ago afterwards, I might've been like, you freak. Oh my God, that's so embarrassing. What the hell's wrong with you? And so now very consciously after that happens, I'll talk to myself and I'll just be like, it's okay. It's a medical thing that happened. Everyone's got their own issues. You're doing great. Good for you for even doing it on camera. I'll have a whole conversation with myself. And, and there, are, there are stretches where I'll forget to do the work as much. And I have to, I have to reapply on it and really do the work again. But it's a, a nonstop everyday thing. You'll hear that from anyone who deals with anything, whether it's depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever it is. Mental health work is every single day. The good news is 
you crave it. You want it because it's it's towards the light. And it takes the 50 pounds to 20 pounds. Like I can, I think that we can find in self-love or however it is that you want to put this phrasing together, the ability to tell yourself that you're okay, <laughs> I think not only is unlocks a whole bunch of stuff in the mental health industry that you could be gentle with yourself, but I think that uh, you can find God somewhere in there if you can take care of yourself with a self-love that allows you to walk around every day spiritually lighter exactly i mean it's and it does you feel yourself come back in your body and you feel grounded and simple things just become so much more enjoyable like the other day i'm with breck who's an instagram model and we're on my boat <laughs> and we're off the coast okay yeah. i'll stop right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't you can leave something to the imagination so people don't hate your big hollywood life which is something in that vanity fair article one of the things that he did point out i was curious to ask you about this uh he mentioned the author mentioned the idea that you fear that in becoming a successful hollywood director that you can fall into the trap of being anything from a hypocrite to a mental patient and that you don't want to be someone who is viewed as selling out to the vanities. Yeah. I mean, the thing with it is, is it's not necessarily about me not wanting to be viewed that way. I mean, in a way, that's what was good about getting aggregated on the feral stuff, because it does throw you back into your body and you realize you're just you and, and that there are going to be people that hate you or judge you or think whatever. And it's the same thing with that idea. It's just that, you know, we're in this freaky business where we're paid a thousand times more than we should be. My sister's a school teacher and it's ridiculous that she does the incredible work she does. And I, I get these checks for goofing around and doing these fun shows. So you just want to make sure when you're in that position, you're conscious of it. You want to make sure that you're spending, you're giving some of the money in the right way that you're, you're doing, you're reaching out and helping. You want to make sure how you're living isn't unconscious because if you go unconscious in that environment of a place like Los Angeles or New York city or Monaco or Hong Kong with money, well, Hong Kong's different now, but it, with money, with access, with a certain degree of power, you go unconscious, it can go to a hundred miles an hour fast. So it's not so much like I care about being viewed as a hypocrite or not it's that i just want to make sure i'm conscious of you know how i live my life not not hyper conscious to the point where i'm a bore or high and mighty but just you want to pay it some mind so um that was definitely something i talked to him about it he didn't go into it that much but but it's uh it's a question a lot of i mean there's a lot of really good people in los angeles people forget we're not from hollywood i grew up outside philly like Seth Rogen's from Canada, like, you know, Sarah Silverman's, I think, from New York. So we're we're all from different places. And you see everyone deal with it in a different way, how conscious they are of it, how much they try and live their life a certain way, not to just end up in a house in the hills with a Lamborghini and three divorces, you know, because that can happen in like two seconds. So instead, I choose a much more spiritual path, which is 
I own six speedboats and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and data rotation of nine different uh, IG models. And and that's the hard road. That's that the I've secret. Changed. It's the secret. It's what they told you in therapy to do. I just love that the universe continues to laugh at you, not only by aggregating you on Will Ferrell juicy stuff when you're sitting here trying to warn people about the end of the earth, but also while you're employing journalists and trying to research really challenging subject matter in Vice and all you do in the award category in terms of winning is uh, best hair and makeup. I love that. Uh, I love. I love that you put in all that work, and the acad- the academy would only give you best hair and makeup because fuck yeah, you, yeah. Adam McKay. Fuck <laughs> you. We truly we were fine with that. We got a bunch of nominations. We got plenty <laughs> recognized on a really hard movie that wasn't exactly you know the easiest sell of all. You know a, a monotone war criminal vice president movie is not exactly what studios are lining up for. Let's do this because there are a lot of people listening to this who are diehards about your movies. And I've said before, I feel like you're responsible for a generation of comedy. So I'm going to go through a couple of your movies here to finish this up and Succession and some of the other stuff you've done that is just so artful and ask you, pin you down on asking you your favorite thing or scene in those movies, either a scene or thing. Okay. Are you ready to do this? Yep. Let's go. All right. Let's do, first of all, let's do Eastbound and down eastbound and down favorite moment <laughs> is the ending the ending or they i i just was so surprised by it where they went to the future and it made me laugh so hard that he did that that mcbride and hill made that crazy choice in the end i remember calling him and i was like that's one of my favorite series finales ever and then i would say the other one is when craig robinson uh when danny mcbride uh kenny powers pitches to him and knocks his eye out which i actually <laughs> i directed that episode so i'm partial to it and obviously remember it but those guys wrote that and god damn that made me laugh the plums and all that stuff with the will ferrell rick flair character the, oh. the 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 plums was that improvised or was that written I, what how much of that show was improvised uh i would say probably this like 20 percent ferrell improvised a lot and that rick flair character oh my god that made me laugh what represents the movie that you have that has the most improvisation in it Step Brothers, Step Brothers. We shot a million feet of film on that borderline apocalypse now uh, level of film. <laughs> and uh, we improvised a lot. I, I got to tell you, the new one, Don't Look Up, has a fair amount of improv in it. I mean, Jonah Hill, he just goes and a bunch of it ended up in the movie. And Meryl Streep can run with the ball. And a lot of it, Timothy Chalamet threw out a lot of great improv. DiCaprio, Jen, all of them. Tyler Perry can go all day long with Kate Blanchett. So there's a shocking amount of improv in this movie for a movie with the cast that it has that is about climate change and is this big release. I think people would be surprised. Favorite scene, moment, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Favorite moment. It's such a uh, small, forgettable moment, but I don't know why. It just makes me laugh so hard when he's with the news team and they're sitting around eating lunch out of their lunch sacks on the empty news set. And he tells the story of how he pictures it's going to go 
with uh, Veronica Corningstone, how she's going to stay at home and never work again. And they're going to get married on a mountaintop and their children are going to form a family band. And then you won't be invited. Just that whole scene of the four of them sitting there. I don't know why, but every time I see that scene, I just, and there's a lot of things in that movie I love, but that, that little scene and Farrell's performance and we'll be on a mountaintop with garlands and herbs, and you won't be invited. I, I just love that run. Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Oh, my favorite moment on that movie is I love, I, I, I was really proud of ourselves because we were just like, man, you can't just have Ricky Bobby win the race. And I was so proud of ourselves that we came up with the idea of the cars wrecking and he's disqualified, but they have a foot race. And then that Pat Benatar song, I just love that he doesn't win the race and Cal Naughton wins the race. It's my, my single favorite thing about the movie because Farrell and I just like every sports movie, the guy has to win. What can we do here? So I love that. I also love, oh, oh, you know what I love in that? Gary Cole training him, retraining him to get rid of the fear. The bobcat in the car, <laughs> putting the drugs in the car. I love Gary Cole's performance. I love that whole sequence with the Steve Earle song playing hardcore troubadour. I, I, I love that. I read about a strength and conditioning coach during the pandemic that had similar training to the Bobcat in the car and the removing of the fear with a uh, Tim Jerns, I believe was his name. I think he trained people by running them through a van filled with wild dogs. Oh, I read that story. That guy seemed troubled. Um, but I also right. read some testimonies, though, that he helped a lot of players, too. There's some players who are thankful for what he put them through. Um, I guess he's dealing with some pretty serious head trauma, but he's trying to get back in the game, I heard. Made him tougher. Made him all tougher. The other guys. You like that one. You you said, I think, today, you said the other guys is uh, when, in terms of fun, having fun on a set, that that one is top of the list. Yeah, I mean, that was da that was slightly dangerous fun because I gained like 25 pounds. <laughs> so when I say fun, we laughed a lot. We just ate like absolute people from the, the 1920s. Uh, <laughs> we were just eating like crazy with no regard for health. But a uh, single favorite moment is an easy one on that one, which is the two biggest action stars in the world, Dwayne Johnson, Sam Jackson, jumping off the roof 10 minutes into the movie and dying. I used to look at the audience every single time. To this day, it still brings me joy. <laughs> and everyone went with it? Like, I don't want to tell them about uh, the controversial ending, but uh, like you, you must have trouble sometimes with, with studios or people in power telling you, well, you, you can't kill the two stars in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, part of the reason we got them was because they were only 10 minutes and they're both <laughs> cool. Guys. They're cool guys who got the joke. So there was never any chance that it was going to turn into a Dwayne Johnson, Sam Jackson, you know, action movie. But, uh, but yeah, no, definitely there's times where we want to do things in movies and studios are like, please don't do that. They're usually pretty nice about it. Uh, certainly the ending of Don't Look Up. You know, there were studios that passed on the movie because of the ending of this one. So um, thank God Netflix had the, had the guts to, to jump into the pool. The big short. I love the Jenga Tower. I just love the whole scene with Ryan Gosling and Carell and Jeremy Strong and all those great actors, Rafe Spall and uh, Hamish Linklater. They're, they're just love that whole scene. Love how they explain it. Love how funny it is. Love the way it's shot. Love the way it's edited. Hank Corwin edited it brilliantly. I just love that scene. Vice? Vice. Uh, I love the moment from when 
Dick Cheney says, give me the unfiltered intelligence. And we start pushing in and seeing strange images and medieval paintings as we realize he's, he's probably losing his mind. And that run into him just like, all right, we're going to shred the Constitution. We're going to war. While, while Colin Powell goes to Afghanistan, we're going to real war, which is how much can we get around the Constitution? That sequence with the score. And I think that's where we have the fish in the stream, the kind of prehistoric fish. And he's with his wife in an underground bunker. He started sleeping in like underground hidden bunkers. He was so paranoid. Just that whole run. I feel like the filmmaking, the music, the acting is just so good all the way. I mean, almost until the waiter comes up and reads them all the ways they can circumvent the Constitution in the restaurant. I just love that old run. The movie you're proudest of is the one that's presently out, correct? The movie that's most personal, most how I feel, most about the moment would be the one that's out right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even though it's not the story of my childhood, in a way, it's the most personal because it is definitely me trying to figure out how to feel now, how to deal with it, how to laugh, how to grieve, like all those kinds of feelings, not to get too too pretentious about it because it is still a big, goofy comedy in a lot of ways. But yeah, it comes out of a lot of personal places. Can I tell people, I don't know how secret it is, can I tell people what your contributions were to Succession and whether your choices here, uh, when you pick best scene that you like over the first three seasons of Succession, would be one of your own or somebody else's? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say what I did. I, I'm a producer on the show and I, I directed the pilot. So that means two things. That, that meant I had the great fun of getting to cast the show with uh jesse armstrong and our casting director francine Maisler. so we put together that whole cast it also meant that i got to set the look with andrej perec our director of photography you set the look you set the music with nick Bertel. i got to help put all that together so it's it's really satisfying when you get to help put a show together like that i definitely know the scene that i loved in the pilot that i shot was the scene where they're playing softball and uh, and uh Kieran Culkin's character offers a check for a million dollars if the son of the gardener can hit a home run. And when I first read the pilot, I was just like, oh, my God, I got to do it. That one scene drew me to it. As far as all these seasons, my favorite episode of all of them is the one where Kendall tries to orchestrate the coup against his father in the boardroom. But then because of a power outage where security shut down, can't get the helicopter to get back to the boardroom and is running through the streets. I think that one's directed by Andres Parekh. I think that's my single favorite episode. And I felt like that's where the show like fully started running in full stride. I think it was the fifth episode or fourth episode of the first season. I, I love that one. What is it about that scene? Because if I may tell people, like I, I, I didn't realize that you had placed in the first season, not only Kendall Roy doing that ridiculous rap scene, uh, which you must have enjoyed uh, writing just the lyrics to that, but also just the whole uh, weird deviant sex relationship uh, <laughs> bet between uh, Roman and Jerry like those. They felt like you had uh, you had infiltrated the place with a little bit of your sophomoric. Yeah, well, actually, I, I meant that to be from a grounded place because Roman Kieran Culkin's character is some serious issues and he's got serious issues with his mother. So I actually 
thought even though it was deviant and funny, it made sense. So what I'll do is every season I send Jesse Armstrong, who's the, the most lovely guy you'll ever meet and brilliant writer, obviously, I'll just send them a bunch of ideas. They have one of the best writers rooms anywhere. So I know full well when I send them all the ideas, if one or two gets through, that's high praise from that room because they have a very specific tone they're working on. So occasionally, yeah, I've gotten a couple little things through. I was graced with writing some of the lyrics for the the Kendall Roy rap along with Will Tracy, one of the other writers and Nick Patel did the music. And, and I just sent Jesse a bunch of ideas a couple of weeks ago for the next season. So we'll see if any of them get through, but man, I, I it's a great show. I, the best thing about it is I just love that. It, it isn't wealth porn, that it shows these people are miserable. They're traumatized. I, it, I wouldn't, I mean, there's people that need money, so I don't mean to speak that flippantly about it, but for me in a million years, I wouldn't trade places with any of those characters. What does the partnership with you and Will Ferrell look like when you're executive producers on something like Succession or Dead to Me on Netflix, which is also exceptional? So we, you know, we have companies, we have producers that that are lead producers for us. And so we're approving everything that's coming through. We're saying, yes, let's do this or let's not do this. And then each of our producers would be lead on it. So in the case of Dead to Me, that was Jessica Elbaum. So she steered that show. She was the day-to-day producer, the main producer on that show. But I read the pilot. I gave a couple notes on the first episode. But any time anyone asked me about that, Jessica Elbaum, Jessica Elbaum, Jessica Elbaum. In the case of Succession, Kevin Messick is the lead producer on that. But I ended up being more involved. There's certain ones I'll pick where I'll really go inside of it. Then there's some other ones where I maybe direct the pilot. Then there's other ones where I give notes. Uh, So it, it varies across the board what our involvement is and was. And each show and each movie is different. There's a Hustlers was a a project where I was approached by the journalist with the material, the article about the story. And then I then went to Jessica Elbaum and said, hey, Jessica, I think you'd be great on this. And I was involved in reading the scripts and giving notes and talking about casting. But then when we shot it, it was Jessica Elbaum every day on set edits, brilliant Lorene Scafaria putting it together. So it's always some variation of that. And Will, did he have to do anything or is this just sort of the the fruit of your partnership? This is what it gives that, you know, you guys are partners on something or have been partners in a business and people just keep bringing you great shit. You can keep giving it to great people. Yeah, that's kind of the way it works. I mean, the, the big example of it is, um, What's his name? Brian Grazier and Ron Howard have Imagine, which might be the most successful production company ever. It like almost became a studio. Brian Grazier is not on every project. Ron Howard's not on every project. They have loads of people that work for him. They're overseeing it. So our company never got anywhere near that. I mean, we we a pretty good size, but all these projects operate under us. We're ultimately what we're doing is we're taking the blame. You know, we're, we're the people that the studios, they trust our tastes. We take the blame if it goes wrong in an emergency. If a project goes off the rails, I'll go into the edit room, even though I'm busy and try and get it back on the rails. I'll supervise a rewrite. I'll come in in a casting emergency and we're, we're kind of backstopping these. And then occasionally there's the projects like the new Lakers show where I'm intimately involved and a lot of it and directed the pilots and, and giving notes on every episode. So it changes 
But ultimately, you you kind of create the umbrella for your producers and the company. I'm going to lean on you when Showtime comes out. And uh, after those episodes that I imagine much of sports will be watching, I'm going to I'm going to talk to you some about the process because I'm I felt remiss in not doing some of this with you, given uh, how both me and my wife are now obsessed with succession. And so I'm going to make sure to do it with what uh, with the Showtime series on HBO, because I can't imagine that it's going to be any anything other than uh, majestic. I love it. I mean, what's great about it is it's not only fun as hell, but Max Borenstein, uh, Rodney Barnes, Jim Hecht, the whole team did a great job of layering in themes of race, class, culture, all. It's got through lines running through it that are really well-observed and respectful. I mean, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar storyline is incredible. So well done. Yeah, I, I love it. I'm happy to talk to you about it anytime. I'm just dying for that thing to come out. Pat Riley doesn't like the Jeff Perlman book that it's based on, and I'm guessing doesn't want to have anything to do with this because I've asked him to come on with you. And he's like, I didn't, you know, I'm not a big fan of what Perlman wrote. Uh, how is he going to feel about your depiction of him in this? Curious what he doesn't like about it, because it's a pretty great story for Pat Riley. I mean, does he like, you know, when he retired as a player, he was a little bit adrift trying to figure out what to do with his life. And it's the story of how he became the Pat Riley we all know and are in awe of. I, I don't feel like there's anything insulting or out of line about it. But yeah, no, it's, it's I, I, I would think he'd be pretty happy. I mean, the only thing I think that's tough for these people, once again, having been recently aggregated, I can speak to this, is it's, it's, it's strange to see your life put out into the public. It's strange for me to see junk from one of my best friends put out, you know, on 150 different sites. So that can be hard for some people. But the only thing I'll tell everyone in the show is it's respectful. Yeah, we may see some of your characters at some low points, but we're always going to show your whole character. There's no one that's just thrown away or you know, treated as a cartoon. All the characters are treated very respectfully. They're fully rounded human beings in the show. They're not, they're not just sports movie cliche characters. So I think Pat Riley should like it, but God, you'd never know. What do you want people to know about the relationship with Farrell that was misrepresented or didn't feel to you to encompass how much love you have had for this man and how much that breakup hurt? Like, what are the parts of this that you want clarified? You know, I don't know if there really is anything. I mean, I tried to say it in the Vanity Fair thing. I don't think it was written very clearly. The one thing through the aggregation is, is that we were already broken up. Like the company was already split. This Lakers casting thing did not cause the split of the company. It was just a matter of we broke up, weren't feeling so great. I didn't call him about that. And then it turned into, I don't want to talk to you. So I, at that timeline, I feel like is clear. Other than that, it was, you know, an incredible 14 year partnership where we did tremendous things and had a great time that just was going to end at some point. I mean, Farrell just didn't want to produce as many things as I did and was pretty upfront about it. And we had a very friendly conversation. I think the thing that both of us underestimated is there's a natural sadness to when you split things up. And that started pervading the relationship at the end. 
And that's when I was saying, like, let's not become the Eagles documentary. Let's not let this happen. But you kind of can't. It just happens. You're splitting. Like, and so even though uh, he was the one who sort of wanted to move on, it just couldn't help but, but not feel so great at the end. So, um, you know, I hope uh, the time will pass. It hasn't been that long. You know, we've been in the pandemic. So it's very possible this is just hard feelings that because of the pandemic, we didn't get to resolve, which was the other thing that was a little aggravating about getting aggregated was that like, hey, this just happened <laughs> in the pandemic. Like, give us a beat to see. Like, it's very possible in three months I talk to you, Dan, and be like, yeah, I just had lunch with Farrell. We laughed about it. That was crazy. Like, that is very, very possible. But um but uh, the, the other thing I would say, if anything to take away from it is, man, no matter what, how lucky am I to have a good friend that I was able to collaborate with in such an easy, non-dramatic way. We never had one single creative fight the entire time we, we worked together. That is, that is true. That is not an exaggeration. And I'm just grateful for that. And I've said it publicly a million times. I love Will Ferrell. I will always love Will Ferrell. And hopefully this blows past and in a year or six months or whatever, we're, we're hanging out. That seems impossible, Adam. How the hell do you not have a creative fight in 15 years? Not one single creative fight. It was the craziest thing. We both just were, we both trusted each other. So if I would say something like, you know, we should cut this. And he would say, God, I'd really like to try it. I think it could be funny. I'd be like, okay. Will Ferrell. If he thinks it could be funny, let's try it. Or he would say, you really think this is going to go here or this could work? I go, yeah, I really do. Because I'm picturing it like this. Go, okay. We've done a bunch of stuff. We just, the disagreements were, were always just more of an idea. And then, well, I looked at the idea like this and none of us felt the need to have drama about it. We used to joke at Saturday Night Live because people would get so wound up and dramatic and we would both look at each other and just go, it's a sketch show. We're being hosted by that kid from that Fox show. It's it's comedy of the moment. Relax. Like we're supposed to be laughing. And that was just always our attitude. The only things that ever were bumpy were the company and just, you know, what we're producing and how we're managing this. And, and those weren't shouting matches. It was just not fun stuff that we had to deal with. But yeah, that is literally true. Not one creative disagreement in the entire time. I'm learning that now, though, and I'm worried about it because I don't love the business elements of some of this. Like, I worry about everybody tells you don't work with your family and your friends. Don't do it. Like, I've gotten that advice all my life. And all I've done the last 20 years is work with my family and friends. And so I do worry about this next step in our journey and whether or not uh, me, my need to buy cigarette boats bigger than yours is going to be something that, uh, you know, makes <laughs> Stugatz in insane and doesn't. Uh, that's funny, Dan. That's so funny because that would never happen. That would never happen that you have a cigarette boat bigger than mine. Is that, was, that the joke you were, was that the joke you were making? Um, buddy, I, mean, the, I see. That was the joke you were making. That's funny. I, that's funny. I am, uh, I am thrilled. I am thrilled for your success. And I am really happy for you. I appreciate the, uh, the time you spent with us. And I'm guessing that you're thrilled that we've talked for two hours and I didn't bring up Holmes and Watson and your need to rewrite that and how you failed there at all. So I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, 
Hey, I want a raspberry for that. I'm a producer on that movie. I want to claim my raspberry and put it on a shelf. You don't have many raspberries, man. I didn't even know until I didn't even know until actually reading some things before we talked today. I had no idea that you had anything to do with Ant-Man. What the hell were you doing around Ant-Man? Co-wrote Ant-Man. Paul Rudd and I, Paul Rudd can write. He and I hold up in a hotel for like three months and uh did a big old rewrite of uh ant-man it was uh the 12 year old in me was doing backflips man i got to work for marvel it was fun as hell no i appreciate it man thank you for having me on and just talking you and i've been meaning to talk for a while and uh laugh and commiserate and uh and i just there's no one you know not to get schmoozy hollywood guy at the end but I, it's crazy how much I listen to your show because I just feel like you guys are one of the like least bullshit things that are out there. There's few shows, movie, whatever you want to say that are as honest as you guys. And it's just like, it, it kept me afloat during the pandemic. I'm still floored by that. I remember being, uh, you'll, uh, you'll appreciate this because I don't know that you remember the exact details of it, but after I went through some of that tough uh, Trump stuff at ESPN, where I had just come back from meeting with the president of the company and there was, uh, it was just a, a tense time. I remember me and my wife in a parking lot, just sort of staring at the phone. I've told you this before with our mouths open because you offered sincere help and you've offered, you not only offered it you've at every turn you've provided it in every way and we were i I don't know if you knew the details right we were after doing this with espn and disney my wife and i insisted at espn's expense and at disney's literal expense that we went to a disney store and bought 25 stuffed over overpriced stuffed dumbo elephants so that we could put them in the (laughs) studio and you know representing you know not just the the republican symbol but also a disney symbol of commerce literally named dumbo while we weren't discussing the elephant in the room the spirit of all of that that me and my wife were doing uh is just born of you of your sensibilities or trying to uh, apply your sensibilities and I remember specifically me and my wife being uh, moved by you seeing what was happening to us during this and offering what turns out to be very sincere non-Hollywood help uh, not Hollywood schmoozing help so uh, I can't thank you enough in every regard yeah my pleasure and yeah and at at bottom too the bottom line with you guys too is you just make me laugh and jokes like the idea of you having a bigger cigarette boat than me or whatever it is you just (laughs) say the craziest most ridiculous insane things that would never happen like that cigarette bug comment my goal my goal my goal is to make a project with you in the future and contractually have in it that i get a cigarette boat that's bigger than yours i'm hoping that that's it that that, that's that that actually somehow got not funny i funny i my Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey's telling me the vein in my forehead is popping out right now. So maybe, maybe stop talking like that, Dan. See you later, Adam. <laughs> See you, Matt. That was great. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste in Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice-cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. 
It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.